been looking forward to this. You've been an inspiration to me for many reasons, and especially in regards to the way you lead Hospice Maui, which I've experienced firsthand from being one of your employees in the past. And you started there as the executive director, I was reading in your bio, back in 1990. Yes. It was about the time I was going into kindergarten. (laughs) Um, But can you just give a brief overview of what hospice is for people that might not be familiar with it? And also, if you can explain why after being a Navy pilot and a naturopathic physician, among many other things, you decided to get involved with Hospice Maui. Well, hospice care uh, arose out of out of, and I'll be very brief with this, the arising of modern medicine brought the opportunity for people to be cured of things that they used to die of. And so hospitals were places where people went to be cured and people in the hospitals didn't know how to deal with people who weren't going to be cured from whatever it was that afflicted them. And so in the 1960s in England, the hospice movement began its, its, basically movement through the entire world. And it came to America in the early 70s and to Maui in the late 70s. And the the premise was people can be cared for appropriately. They can receive dignity and um, they can receive care that's appropriate for the condition that is progressing and not curable. And it can be a very rich and rewarding time. They can be pain-free. Symptoms can be controlled. And the focus can be comfort care at the end of life. And that was quite a contrast between the hope of cure, even in the absence of any realistic expectation of cure, that had basically become the societal norm. From the early 80s, when Hospice Maui was incorporated in 1981, up until probably uh, the beginning of this century, there was there was a lot of a lot of uh, of resistance to the idea, a lot of ignorance around what really was good symptom control, what's good pain control. Um, by the time by the time um, hospices became the standard of care, which was, I would say, um, the standard of care for people who are dying by the middle, right, like maybe 20, to 2005 to 2010, somewhere in there, it was finally considered to be the standard of care. Hospice, which is bringing in a nurse, a doctor, a social worker, a spiritual care counselor, a volunteer, um, perhaps a physical or occupational or speech therapist into the home, into the nursing home, into whatever setting the person who is ill is living and providing them with whatever equipment, medical supplies and medicines they need, that became what was expected. And so hospice today is now a mainstream form of appropriate care for people when they no longer have the choice to pursue a curative or life-extending treatment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that background. I also 
I came into my interest in hospice Maui after working at the hospital myself and doing rehabilitation and occupational therapy. And I feel that after, you know, having this interest in hospice and coming into it, I'm so glad that I did because it really just widened the perspective of why I had some of the challenges that I did with working with the patients in the hospital setting in regards to curative treatments and that feeling of failure when we can't always cure something. So I just find mm-hmm. that it's stick to take in all of those Truly. factors into case. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then, so what was it that um, sparked your interest in working for hospice? Well, that's interesting. That's interesting, I, I, and, and it, it does diverge a little bit here, and I'll again be brief with this part, but I had decided in my early 20s that for me to make decisions about what to do in my life would simply limit myself to what the contents of my own brain were, which I thought was a, a, a fundamental failure on my part if I did that, and so it meant that any time, for instance, my going to uh, to naturopathic medical school was not something that I had aspired to or dreamt of. Being a Navy pilot was, I have to say, I did that. But after that, I was disciplined enough to to know not to ask to have things my own way. And so when the opportunity came up for naturopathic medical school, it was presented to me in such a way that I had to consider it. And Mm. I thought, well, I've never really thought of this. I've never really wanted this, but it seemed like the right thing to do because the lights were green, the doors were opening. And I thought, well, I need to do this, even though this is not on my list of interests. And it was very similar to that. When I was in my training, I remember thinking over and over, I'm used to being involved in doing things where an ounce of effort brings a pound of result. And seeing patients one by one didn't have that same feeling. And so I was not expecting that I would be in a private practice and not expecting that I would um, that I would be happy if I were in a private practice. So I was curious about what I would end up in. I had a private practice here on Maui once I got my 21 licensing exams over three days finished and got my license and I did open a practice here for a little over a year and was not happy in it and was keeping my eye out for other opportunities and there was an ad in the paper that said that Hospice Maui was looking for an executive director. My logical mind was saying, no, no, (laughs) I I don't want to be fundraising, I don't want to be managing people, I don't want to be an administrator. Um, that's not what I want. And, uh, but another part of me is going, yeah, this is the door. This is the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, you can say that I was led to it, perhaps not kicking and screaming, but without real enthusiasm, except with a deep sense of trust that I have led a charmed life and it would not be different and that this would be the right thing somehow. And, uh, it's, it appears that it was right. So All um, these years later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never thought of it as a career per se because I've done many other things. And while I've been doing this job, I continue to do various other things. And so I consider it to be something that I've been doing a long time and that I have, uh, have a lot of knowledge about and have um, do get 
quite a bit of reward out of this work. And so here I am still. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I find a couple of things came up as you were speaking, especially like about intuition, really. Is that what you'd say you're referring to when you're going more beyond the logical? And well, that's an that that's an interesting question because um, intuition can be interpreted as a subconscious um, prioritization and arrangement of the facts. And this is really not to do with the facts. So I would say that for those who think of intuition that way, then this was not intuition. For those who think of intuition as something a little more esoteric and and um, less um, able to be nailed down, then it's it was definitely that. I I I have been able to look behind me in my life and notice that in so many ways how things have gone is not random. It's been a pattern that continues to unfold in front of me in the same way. And so given me, in a sense, if nothing else, if my entire life was a throw of the dice, so to speak, it was looking like I got a good throw. And since it's one throw, why should it change particularly? I have not had traumas and dramas and whatnot. And so I thought there's no reason not to trust when a door is open. It is not a trap to throw me down in some hole. And so I've had, again, I've had, a, I've had wonderful luck that has allowed me to have trust in things that I don't know, don't understand, can't predict. And so it sends me on wonderful adventures that I would not choose. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I often have gotten the reaction in, in regards to conversations about hospice. People often assume that working in the field in some way would be depressing. They might even like cringe when I would mm-hmm. say that I was working there. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> do you find that, that that could be true for somebody? It doesn't sound like it's true for you. You just referred to it as a magical adventure. <laughs> and I'm also wondering, how does your work inform your life now? Um, the, um, one of the things that was true for me that made it so that when I was confronted with the opportunity to work for hospice, I didn't just run the other way, was that I had for some years found a a saying or a phrase or a, a value that was really meaningful for me. And I had found it so even as a child, which may sound odd when you hear it. Mm. And that was the value of using death as an advisor. And it does mm. come, it does come from some writings, but um, it had a lot of meaning because in a, in a lifespan where we don't know where the end of it is, and we do know that it's limited. It means that every decision and every action we make has a particular importance if we make that decision or take that action in the context of, in fact, the finality of it, the potential that it's the last thing we ever do. Mm. And, and so living in that way made the choice of working for hospice somehow natural because that particular value was particularly strong for me. I felt very strongly about that value. I felt that most people missed the boat on that and didn't take responsibility for their lives, didn't recognize that each moment and each 
word and each action could be their last? And were they, were, were they really living it as though it would be their last? And I'm not saying that I do, but I strive to and, and have always strived to and have been aware of that. And there's a certain detachment, a certain freedom, and a certain power in that. And so hospice, in a way, was the, the sort of uh, health care niche where that particular philosophical strength of mine met um, some resonance. And so even though I didn't like the idea of being a fundraiser, didn't like the idea of or managing people, I did feel quite a lot of comfort in, the, in dealing with it as a, as a profession related to dying, at the end of human beings' life. I felt that I actually resonated quite strongly with that piece and that I was capable then of not steering away, not leaning out, leaning away from, but rather able to lean in to the various issues that come up on a day-to-day -day basis with staff, with patients, and with families. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I found just personally from taking the volunteer training, which you introduced a very intense exercise at the very beginning, I felt the inevitability of my mortality more than I ever have in my life in that, in that moment um, at the very beginning of the training. And I was really impressed with it because I also find that working in healthcare, working in home care in the hospital, it wasn't ever made a priority from, from management in my past experiences before working for Hospice Maui to focus on the self-care and the emotional side of the individual. And I find that you do that at Hospice Maui, both with the volunteer and staff training program and with the contemplative care of the dying training. And so I'm just wondering if you could explain more about those programs and why you continue to make them a priority for the staff. Well, you can imagine that as hospice has become more and more mainstream and it becomes a choice that someone can make in their career that there is no sacrifice in terms of pay or whatnot, that it's likely to eventually attract a fairly representative cross-section of healthcare workers, which means that it could, in my opinion, devolve into just healthcare which then is focused on a particular condition, on a particular treatment plan in the context of people's lives. And certainly healthcare, I think, has improved over the past number of years because, because the sort of cold, hard fact aspect of it has, has shown its, uh, its deficits and, and people are moving toward practitioners who are taking a more, uh, a larger view of the human being as and the human interaction as essential pieces to the healthcare, and in hospice care, it really is special in many ways. And I I feel that if you have a a healthcare worker doing hospice work who has not deeply personally examined their own relationship to dying, their own dying, not somebody else's, how can they really be present? to assist someone else who is in fact facing that existential crisis. And so my feeling is very strongly that, that people in leadership positions in hospice, if they're really going to provide a service to the community that's not just, oh, here's some 
pain control medicine and and uh, and, and here's a an opportunity to talk to a social worker or a chaplain or whatever if it's really going to to have if the workers are going to stand in the homes of people who are dying and stand there unafraid or at least at the very least really aware of their own relationship to their own death and what this particular patient and family mean to them in terms of their own death if they can't if they can't do that then they're not doing the work as well as it can be done and so as long as I'm in a leadership position here, I'm going to commit some of our organization's resources to bring those who work for us into line with the deepest principles of serving and standing humbly and in a, with an open mind in the presence of people who are experiencing the end of their lives or in the case of family members, the end of the lives of their loved ones. I think that it is an essential ingredient to proper hospice care, and sadly, it is becoming less and less valued at the uh, sort of leadership levels in hospice organizations. Mm, yeah, you mentioned the way that hospices are becoming more mainstream, and I think it's a really good thing to address here because a lot of people seem to think that hospice is kind of one entity and it's uh, many different organizations that are independent of each other. And so mm -hmm. when, when regards to people, you know, being, being more open to hospice now and when they're, they're choosing a hospice, are there certain things, well, both if you could address like what it means that hospices are becoming more mainstream and also when choosing a hospice, what are the things to look out for? Well, um, okay, so in terms of hospices becoming more mainstream, um, basically, the health insurance industry back in 1983, I think it was 82 or 83, when Medicare created the Medicare hospice benefit, they did something that they hadn't done up to that point in anything else. And that is that they said, you know what, we're going to give you a set amount of money per day. And we're going to say, this is what hospice care is. And you figure out how to provide it for this much money. And at the time, the only people who provided hospice care were organizations that had sprung up in the various communities of the country as a direct answer to the needs that were perceived. And those people were aware of what the best care would look like, and they were going to utilize whatever resources at their disposal to give the best care possible. So hospice began truly as that level of service. And so the reimbursement was part of the money and then they would fundraise and get grants and whatnot as needed. And so they tended to have fairly rich in terms of interaction and staff to patient time and this kind of thing, programs. Well, um, in the spirit of free enterprise, business people said, well, you know, for a set amount of money and a set program, if we gave half as much care and we're careful in how we did that and documented it, um, we can walk away with quite a handsome profit. And so that began in the late 90s. And by the middle 2000s, more than half of the hospices in the United States had become for profit. And right now it's around, it's over 60% are for. And the idea being that if they play according to the rules, 
then they uh, can provide adequate hospice care and um, make a, quite a reasonable profit. Well, in that scenario, the owner is a businessman. The owner is not someone who moved into this work out of a sense of need. So the businessman is typically and largely unaware of these other aspects of, of uh, ri richness that good training of hospice staff can bring. And so they don't have a value for it. And so it is not going to be coming from a for-profit leadership to spend very expensive time on a regular basis um, marinating, so to speak, staff in these values about being present with people and about facing and looking at their own issues. And on top of that, of course, the, 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 the legacy hospices like ourselves also have to maintain the highest standards of professional um, performance in terms of knowing how to how to do all the various procedures and treatments and be up on the latest in pain and symptom control. And this aspect of hospice care that I'm talking about is on top of the professional expertise that is to be expected from a healthcare organization in the United States. So that is, that's a little piece of, of uh, you know, this business opportunity and why things have shifted. In terms of people trying to find a hospice, because in most areas there are choices of hospices, um, the challenge is this. Most people who receive hospice care, families, patients, etc., have not experienced it before. Now, in another 20 years or so, it will start to be changing so that substantial portion of the people will have had some experience, even if it's only a single one. But shopping for hospice care when you don't actually truly know what you're shopping for is a bit of a trap. And so here is where the, the for-profit hospice organizations or the aggressive nonprofit hospice organizations who are, who are into um, expansion and as opposed to service they are very good with their marketing. And so, of course, people read marketing materials and whoever's got the best lines and the best photos and the best everything are the people who get the, the patients. Um, Medicare has j just released some uh, information allowing people to shop based upon performance from the perspective of families who have received the care. That was just released today, believe it or not. This is quite an auspicious, seriously. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's good timing. <laughs> yes, it's really good timing. Um, it, and so it's called Hospice Compare. And starting today, it is utilizing family satisfaction survey results that Medicare has been, has been um, putting out for the last two years. And it's admittedly, the results are from a period a year-long period that ended over a year ago, so it's it's uh, somewhat dated, but things don't change that fast in the world of hospice, so it's it's not an unreasonable way to do it, and at least there is some more objective basis for comparison. 
Hospice Compare on the CMS of the Medicare website. That's one way people can shop. Uh, another way is to have conversations in, you know, if people are living in a particular place, have conversations with others who have experienced hospice, long, detailed conversations to get a sense of how, how was it to reach someone knowledgeable after hours? What sense of, did, did the person who, um, who gave the care, or did they have their head in their computer and taking notes all the time? <laughs> yeah. Sitting really present and listening. Um, did they feel like they were deeply respected and heard? I mean, these are the kinds of questions you want to ask because the actual experience of hospice care is dramatically changed when it is no longer simply someone giving you some medicines for things that you just said you weren't feeling good about. Mm. If, if on top of that is a level of um, an experience of a depth of listening, an experience of this may sound odd, but, you know, one of the, one of the, fundamental pieces of good hospice care is compassion and compassion comes from love and to have that a person can't be in a state of anxiety this i'm talking about the hospice worker can't mm. be in a can't be in a state of anxiety or fear or rushed to do whatever the next thing is or any of those things they have to be deeply and fully present in the moment with that person not afraid of what may be said or may happen and that takes specialized training, mm -hmm. plain and simple. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, cho so choosing a choosing a hospice implies knowing even how to how to ask the questions of those who have experienced hospice care to try to flesh out what the level of of comfort and compassion and um, love could be associated with the hospice workers that they experienced. You know, were those workers comfortable in their skin? Were they, were they really, did they care? Did you really feel caring when they were present? These are the, these are the questions that you need to ask. It's like, yeah, well, no, they were rushed. They were professional. They were rushed. They were um, on task. They were this. Okay, so that's fine if you're, you know, if you're going in to get your flu vaccination, but that's not when you're looking at the last, mo you know, your last days and weeks in the world. I don't think that's appropriate care. Wow, yeah, that brings up a really important point about this whole this whole idea of just the ability to be more present with people. And I just have found so often people have such a different idea of what hospice is before they've had an experience with it versus after. I've heard people, mm -hmm. um, you know, very fearful of it beforehand. Um, and then afterwards, it's, it's something, though, that can't even always be described. One woman right. even told me, you know, somebody, they, there was a hospice nurse with her mom, and they were, unfortunately, hospice was only on service for the last three hours of her mother's oh, life. But, mm. yeah, but it was a person from hospice now. I don't even know who it was, but she said that it was, she had tears in her eyes with gratitude, though, of what that nurse was doing. And she said she was just sitting there, but there was just something so incredible and, and has just had this lasting impression, even for her response to her grief afterwards, how she described it. So is there, is there a common thread of what you find misconceptions about hospice and then people's feelings after they've had an experience with, with Hospice Maui in particular? I can tell you that, that one, of the, one of the most profound failings in, in our society 
is that people are not taught that information is not the same as knowledge mm. and that ha being informed about something is not the same as knowing about something and that knowledge is not the same as wisdom and that the, the wisdom requires knowledge and information and knowledge requires information but these things are much more and it is not I just, I just don't think that it's reasonable to expect that if you haven't experienced something, you can know what it is because reading or listening or talking or there is no form of information exchange that is the same as living an experience. Hmm. And we, set, we tend to think that because it's possible to get information about every last thing that you want to do, that that actually is useful. In a, in, a, in, a, in a large and a major way, and it's not. It's only useful in a minor way. And this, is a, this leads to a, a, um, a deficit of wisdom in general because people make the mistake of thinking that information is where it's at, and information is only a starting point. It's only a very small piece of it. So I take it for granted that regardless of what people say, they have no idea what hospice is unless they've experienced it. And, and by would you say that could even be a family member? Or were you about to say? I, I was just about to say that, that experience it doesn't mean that you had to be the patient dying and re receive hospice care. But the closer you are to that person who's dying receiving the care, the more profoundly you are affected by and can understand what hospice is. And the more peripheral you are, the more of an onlooker you are, the more it becomes just information. There's a person came at this time and left at that time, and they said kind words, and they gave some medicine. And then it's just talk. Mm. And, and that's, that's to, to me, the beauty of the book you have written is that it goes beyond talk because it invites people to act. It invites them to engage and and challenge themselves. You know, most books are taking images, which you can only base upon images you already have, and it rearranges them in a new way. Your book is a step more than that because it, it, it helps people wrestle with things internally or in groups and synthesize these things and hear other people's experiences so that it brings just instead of just the mental piece, it brings an emotional piece as well. And the step that's even stronger than that, of course, is to actually have to deal with someone that you love who is dying or yourself dying and then wrestle with these things and have these experiences in that context. And so um, one of the reasons that I think that, um, that I'm so happy to to be supporting what you're doing in any way at all is because I think that it's rare for people to be brought into the ring. They always sit in the stands and, and, and they're, uh, they are spectators and your book invites them to be participants in a way, you know, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not full participation, but it sure is a step in the right direction. So. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that. And as you were even speaking, um, before you said that about just the relationship of um, 
somebody having an experience with somebody dying or in hospice, I was thinking a lot about um, my own chapter on death and femininity and how in our culture we tend to place a lot of importance on what I consider to be more masculine qualities of, of logic and, and you know having a straight answer for something where it seems in this realm of, of hospice and when it comes to dying, there's just so much, there's so much mystery and there's so mm-hmm. many ways that we can kind of um, like revel in that mystery. And, and I think what, mm-hmm. yeah. And what hospice Maui taught me even with the, the training was how much the beingness matters how much it means. And I couldn't, you know, I'd heard that so often. I think it's a natural quality that I've had with listening. Um, I met so many people who were really, um, gosh, in the hospital, people are having a hard time, even if it's for a simple procedure. I had found that people would break down and tell me a lot of their stories and they would always thank me so much for listening. And I kept on hearing that. And I didn't really place a lot of importance on it until I actually did a training at Hospice Maui where there was a woman that sounds so simple and maybe silly to some people, but I was just laying there breathing and somebody was watching me breathe and just being present with me and I could feel it. So it wasn't until I could have another example of a felt experience that I knew the power of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I find that something you really embody and I really appreciate it, especially for these times right now where a lot of people are enraged with (laughs) more of the masculine, um, somebody who kind of looks like you, who's a CEO of a company that's male and has gray hair. Um, But at the same time, I feel like even though you are that, you embody very much both the feminine masculine qualities of a person. And I think that it... um, it benefits what you do. I mean, it's who you are, but also um, it benefits Hospice Maui from the staff all the way to the, to the patient for you to hold that. And I wonder if that's something that has come from you working with women. Has that helped? Um, has that helped inform your life being married as long as you have? Um, or is that something you even noticed within yourself? Were you always that way? If you can speak to that, I would love to hear. Well, um, I think that I know that when I first took the job and it was, there was only uh, six other people in the organization, all women. And for years and years, um, up until today, it's a, probably a 20 to one or more ratio of women to men. I have, um, I enjoy working with women because to be honest, their egos are not as big. <laughs> I hate to say that and make it sound like a gen- blanket generalization, but against your own, like, yeah, <laughs> yes, kind, right? <laughs> but um, but but I but I I have found that to be true. I have found that the women who are drawn to hospice work come with a depth of sincerity in their willingness to serve. That again has filtered out a lot of ego. Um, I, you, when you heard me say earlier about not wanting my life to be a reflection of my own thoughts and desires, that came from a very philosophical sort of esoteric philosophical perspective. I saw the limitation of that, which then forced me to look at what my, what my desires and and thoughts would contain. And when I wasn't choosing that to notice 
there was a very masculine edge to my natural tendencies, but that if I allowed the doors that open naturally, if I allowed myself to go through those doors, I find myself involved and thinking and interacting in ways that are not traditionally male. And so I, I can say that I noticed that, but it has not been an object, an objective of mine. It is not my natural tendency. Um, I'm naturally, you know, pretty competitive and uh, tend to be a sort of a high testosterone kind of a person in a lot of ways. And, and yet I, using death as an advisor, so to speak, using, using the importance of each action, I try to be aware as much as I can of all the various pieces and to, and to be open to acting in ways that even surprise myself. And so in doing, in doing that, I think I have inadvertently braced a more balanced male-female style, but it has not been intentional. The word balance has been intentional, but I have never framed it in terms of gender mm. tend tendencies. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And earlier you were talking about, yeah, using death as an advisor. I love that that came up. And multiple people have now um, told me about this, this teaching that I hadn't heard before, but I ended up choosing a very similar subtitle, <laughs> using death <laughs> as a teacher to thrive in life. And so when randomly, I put in quotes right now, in air quotes, you texted me and said that, um, I can't even remember why you said it, but it was just when I was about to finish the book, you told me about this phase in your life in your 20s about using death as an advisor. And mm -hmm. I freaked out because like, I just love, again, like the mystery of life and how the timing and things work out. I have to <laughs> this to you and then I, I get that message. And um, so I'm wondering, are there any practices that you, or maybe even it, it might even mean, um, something beyond a practice or reading a book, is there anything that you recommend for others as resources for using death as an advisor or contemplating death in a way to inform um, life? You know, this is one of my major failings. I, I am not actually well-informed in a lot of areas. And, and in terms of that, I don't, I'm, I'm poorly read and I'm, <laughs> I, I, I've, um, my sense early on in my life was that I probably had better figure everything out on my own and work everything out from an original perspective because I found when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I had an experience where I realized that adults really didn't know any more than I did. <laughs> they had, they had more information, but they hadn't processed it well. And they were, they were acting out of habit. And I, I started to, to feel that most people were not deeply alive and that that frightened me half to death. And I thought, well, then I'm just going to have to figure out everything on my own. So I don't tend to be well-read because I don't necessarily think that, and I, it sounds terribly arrogant, but I don't feel that, that listening through reading something is likely to be as informative in terms of the knowledge and wisdom that I talked about earlier as just paying close attention within my own life, within the context that I am finding myself and that that's where, that's where I can learn the most, not reading somebody else's intellectualization of their own experiences. So 
Um, again, if I sound like a, like a sort of no, a back, no, backwoods hick, because who doesn't read anything, that's my apologies. <laughs> no, no problem. I'm all, I was also thinking, though, um, I would find just being out at, at hospice events and things that people would talk about a, you know, kind of a calling to to work in hospice or to come and volunteer. And I loved being that person to give them that resource for them to then take the next step. And of course, they right. want people to come and volunteer that are really wanting to do it and to commit to it. But on another level, I just think it's an incredible training to um, be a part of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Isn't always to do with reading. And um, let me see, this is totally going in a different direction, but um one thing that's coming up for me a lot between working in the hospital and then home care and hospice is um, even working for hospice, I saw that just in one year, there were three different children that were on service and died on hospice Maui service. And, and then I experienced illness myself and um, just got me thinking a lot about it really kind of shifted my perspective on and how I made meaning or did or stopped trying to make meaning of illnesses well, happening to people well said. at all ages. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if I have a question in there that's direct for you. I'm just wondering, what do you think about that, that meaning that we, that we make with illness? I think that it is our, it is, it is where our creativity can meet reality. We may not have the ability to change some circumstance. For instance, if we're too tall or too short, we can't change that. The meaning that we give the experience of being tall or short is something that we can be the author of. Hmm. And, And I think that if we recognize that certain things are nobody's fault so that we're not looking around for where to blame and complain, if we say this is simply the way it is, what, what role do I have? What power do I have? And then the power it has to do with our story. What story can I tell? Not only tell others about where I am, but what story can I tell myself about where I am so that it empowers and enriches me? To me, those are critically important questions. And that is, that is uh, you know, an existential search in some, in some senses. And there are many things written. There are whole fields of human endeavor and spirituality dedicated. Um, certain, certain aspect of spirituality called religion actually you can sort of choose your flavor and it will assign specific values to these things so that you don't have to work it out or you don't have to create it yourself mm-hmm. or you you can be less attached to one of the recipes for existential basis of life and come up with your own i mean it's it's amazingly open ended and so it's when you when you start to, i mean you're what you're talking about here is you're you're delving into the fundamental creative aspect of living is that's where it lies right there right there that's where it lies and uh there's real adventure to be found there once we start discovering that much of the way we look at things is stuff that's been handed to us and we've accepted it without examination and when we start examining and digging into it and 
and looking at it in a new way, maybe we discover that we can create a different story. And if we, and if we're able to um, understand the depth of, uh, of the story that we're creating and not just taking for granted, uh, there's a tremendous amount of value in that and how one feels about one's life in the moment is, is one's happiness or one's depression or one's, um, one's experience. And so it gives us power over not what's happening as a context, but over how we're responding to what's happening. And of course that that's, that's the basis for, for, um, most spiritual search and work. Mm-hmm. I love that you use the word creativity. I hadn't really thought of that like around death before, but I've thought a lot about it in life and how there's something so parallel in terms of um, creating. It could be anything, really. I don't mean being artsy, but just that there's a there's this like sort of calling, and I just I keep on finding this parallel to being fully alive, to tapping into that, and it seems like tapping into something that's greater than ourselves that we can't even always make sense of. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay. And if we, and, and, and let me just add to that. And, and if we think we've made sense of it or we do make sense of it, I would suggest that we just ruined it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Or I, yes, exactly. I've thought that I've made sense of things before. And just when I think that like something new comes arises and completely contradicts it, it's just, <laughs> yeah, very interesting and fun ride. Um, so yes, I want to be respectful of your time and I only have a couple more minutes. And is there anything else that you'd like to be asked? Anything that's coming up for you? Um, I haven't, I, I've, I've been very uh, engaged by your questions. It's rare that I'm in a situation where I'm asked questions of such depth and insight because it's, uh, you know, in a conversation, I, I try to find the level of of the sort of level meaning like the water where's the water in the glass in terms of how to respond because i speak to um, you know civic groups and seniors groups and college classroom groups and um, it's very refreshing to have a conversation where i can kind of pull out the stops and be as uh, as genuine without having to sidestep any of the issues as I have had in this conversation. So I am, I'm not left with any sort of, Oh, I wish you were asking me this or that. I mean, if you have, if you have other questions, I'm happy to continue for a few more minutes here. Okay, great. Thank you for saying all that. And I've just really enjoyed talking with you. And even with knowing you for a little while, I've, I've, I've learned even more about you and how you see the world. And I find it to be a very unique way that you see it. And I appreciate it that you taking this time. Um, I guess just the last thing is, where can people go to find out more about Hospice Maui, ways to support, um, how to connect? Well, you know, one of the things that is a true, um, a true statement is that healthcare is always, as an industry, is always looking for ways to deliver what needs to be delivered with the least amount of resources. And that's reasonable. The challenge, of course, is that part of what we're delivering at Hospice Maui cannot easily be quantified. And yet I am, I know, 
and our hospice compare national figures tend to bear out, there is uh, there's a lot of value in the de- in increasing the depth of knowledge and wisdom of our staff through certain kinds of training. And if we were to write a sort of a wish list of, of what would happen that would strengthen us organizationally so that we could better serve this community, I would say that we would love to have an endowment for hospice in-depth training that we could do as an ongoing thing to our staff. And if it's not an endowment, then even if someone were to go to our website and like, you know, give $50 or something like that, if they put in the comment section that they want that money restricted to be used for hospice education, in-depth hospice staff training or something like this, that is a way that they could support the ongoing efforts of what I've been talking about here. Mm, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We... And I think it's great when people specifically know where their donation is going to. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And I was also thinking about the, um, the hospice volunteer trainings and yeah, anything else that's going on um, in the Maui community as well. Um, if you have, I don't know if you'd be aware if you have any events coming up, any being mortal events or anything like that. Well, there is a being mortal event that's coming up at the hospital. We're having it for physicians. Yes. It's coming up. Um, I have to look on my calendar here to see if it's even, it's in the first week of March is all I can tell you for sure about that. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see if it's on here. I don't see it on here. Um, But I think it's the ninth. Again, I'm not totally sure, but our website would probably have that information. Oh, yeah, it's another great resource, hospicemaui.org. It is. Yes. It is. And then sometime in the next couple of weeks, we're having a whole new website um, will be up and running. Mm. Um, and so uh, we have newsletters on our website that give interesting glimpses into our view of the world and our the experiences of our patients and whatnot, and they go back for years and years and years. So if someone is really interested in, and the the details of the culture of our organization, that's probably a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting world. Well, I want to thank you, Greg, for joining me for your honesty and for the work that you're doing out there. And I, um, I look forward to more conversations in the future. I would love to have more conversations. I appreciate what you've done with your book. Um, It was an absolute joy having you on our staff. And I'm sorry that your life has taken you in a direction where you're not here with us. But um, But at least you understand. I I wish you the very best. I thank you for this opportunity. And I thank you for what you're doing to to keep this conversation alive. This is a very important conversation. And... uh, I wish you well with, uh, with everything you're doing with this. Oh, thank you so much, Greg, and for your support. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. All right, bye.